Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 1 through chapter 2 and verse 11. And thank you, Alex. Well done reading this first of the narratives of 1 Samuel. But we're going to start <laughs> first. Don't laugh, Mike. We're going to start first in Psalm 24. Psalm 24. <laughs> A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He, or may I suggest she, who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up her soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. She will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of her salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. O Lord of hosts. In verse 11 of 1 Samuel chapter 1, that's who Hannah's praying to. O Lord of hosts, that's whom Elkanah led his family to worship. In verse 3 of 1 Samuel 1, now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Faithfully, in accordance with the law of God, they made their pilgrimage to the regional sanctuary, potentially for each of the three annual festivals, to worship Yahweh and offer sacrifices of gratitude. And we're not in Jerusalem yet, of course. There is no ascending of the hill of the Lord that Psalm 24 talks about, not in 1 Samuel chapter 1. There are no gates, there are no ancient doors to swing open, not yet. But it is the house of the Lord we're in, according to verse 24 of chapter 1. And in that house, there's a woman, and she's weeping. Verse 10 says that she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. That's who she's talking to. 
She's talking to the king, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So here's a question I wonder if you've ever asked yourself as we begin a book that focuses on kingship. Why is it that it is the Lord God who is the king? Because there's lots of ways that the Bible talks about God and describes our relationship to him. But the number one way, at least as I read it, the primary way the Bible talks about God is that God is the king. And I'm asking you, why is that? What is it that makes the Lord the king, the self-sufficient sovereign protector and provider of his people? Why? Well, you know it, even if you've never been asked the question exactly that way. The answer, in fact, was there in Psalm 24 that I started with. Right at the start of it, listen. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It's all his. Why? For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Here's a key teaching of the Bible. God's the king because God's the creator. It's all his. And according to the Bible, what is it that you need to come into the presence of the king, the creator, the Lord of hosts? Answer from verse 4 of Psalm 24. He or she who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up her soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, she will receive blessing from the Lord. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And friends, at this moment in the history of Israel, in the scene before us in 1 Samuel chapter 1, there's someone whose heart is right before the Lord and whose soul isn't lifted to what is false, but instead is pouring out her soul before the Lord. There's someone who will receive blessing from the Lord even as she makes a vow of vows, not swearing deceitfully. And that person is Hannah, which is rather odd, isn't it? This beginning point of Samuel, that this biblical story, which is to relate the deeds of kings and nobles, begins with a socially marginal woman in an obscure Israelite village. She's a woman with no children. Her husband is Elkanah. They are from Ramah in the hill country of Ephraim. And at that time, things were not well in the hill country of Ephraim, as they were not in Israel generally. And we spent most of last week discussing that, if you were here, that there seemed to be no hope for the future of Israel. The book before Samuel in the Hebrew Bible is Judges, remember? And how does that one end? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And whether the king there who was lacking was a human king like David, or as I'm inclined to think, Yahweh himself, who was not being honored as king, 
the verdict is clear. There was no hope for Israel. So it seemed. Just as it seemed there was no hope for Hannah. Because she'd not had any children. And so Elkanah had married a second woman, Penina. She'd had children. So Hannah knew it wasn't Elkanah's problem, so to speak. Why was this happening to her? It should be said that ancient Israelites did often view childlessness, like famine and drought and enemy invasions and such things, as a sign of divine disfavor. But whatever the popular level understanding of the matter was, the Bible contains no indication that Yahweh was displeased with Hannah. Something else is going on. Something else is going on, and how much of it Hannah understands when we come into the scene in chapter 1, I don't know. But there she is, weeping, praying in Shiloh. There are three scenes in chapter 1 that I want to look at just very briefly with you all of which is intended in this sermon then to set up Hannah's prayer hymn in chapter 2. And if I do my job any, with any relative success, then by the time we're done, I think we'll see that Hannah, in fact, has come to see a great deal more was going on than we might have suspected at first. So three scenes, just quickly. We've already covered some of the first scene last week in verses 1 and 2 in, in talking about some of these details. But now we move into verses 3 to 8 in this first scene. First scene, verses 3 to 8. It's the narrative background, right? Elkanah's leading his family regularly to Shiloh to worship at festival times. We meet the various characters who become significant early in the book. There's Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, these religious leaders in Shiloh. A lot more to say about them next week. Not so good. We get a sense then of the domestic life of Elkanah and his two wives early on in chapter 1. It's not a very happy picture. Penina in some way was provoking Hannah. Irritating her, the text says. We don't know how exactly, but it probably wasn't very hard. I mean, walking around Shiloh with all her sons and daughters, as the text says. She was Hannah's rival. So you can fill in the rest with your imagination. There's Alcana. He kind of gets a bad rap. I'm not sure entirely how fair that is, to be honest. He loved Hannah, the text says in verse 5. He would even give her the choice portions of the sacrifice, which seems significant. Elkanah treated Hannah with honor, despite her childlessness. But it's the questions that Elkanah asks in verse 8 of this first scene that tend to get him in some trouble in the eyes of at least most modern commentators. Hannah, why do you weep, he asks. Seems like maybe he should have known the answer to that one. Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Well, no. <laughs> but, but, 
but I think, but I don't think you can say that Elkanah's just being insensitive or selfish. I mean, maybe it was a rebuff of some kind, or, or maybe it was more of a tender pleading. I mean, a lot would ride on the tone of voice, I think, which I don't know. But whatever the case, Hannah's barrenness overrides the power of Elkanah's love. And even on the most positive reading of Elkanah's intention, for Hannah, it's all sadness and grief and loss of appetite. She doesn't eat of the sacrifice. How could she? She doesn't sense the blessing of God. She doesn't feel God has remembered her. Yet it's when we come then into the second scene in verses 9 to 18 that we realize that for all Hannah's disappointment and suffering vis-a-vis -vis Penina and for all her sadness, no matter what Elkanah may well-intentioned or not be saying, Hannah's heart still remains turned steadfastly to Yahweh. In fact, it was precisely through her disappointment and suffering that Hannah's faith now comes out. Notice first in verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Where's she going? Well, to the temple of the Lord, it says. And on her own, too, as far as we can tell. Note that. This is her faith at work now. Elkanah regularly went up to Shiloh, the text says, but Hannah's faith was her own. Notice next her prayer. First, simply that she prays. That she doesn't leave her pain behind. Instead, now she channels it into prayer. And the narrative suggests that she knows that the Lord closed her womb. And that Hannah's response is then to go directly to the Lord. And I think her prayer is one of faith, not some kind of desperate bargaining with God. We've already considered the use of the title, O Lord of Hosts. But then look at how her prayer begins. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, what language is she borrowing from? Well, Exodus language. Exodus 3, verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, says the Lord. She's waiting for the Lord's deliverance. In other words, Hannah's begging God to do for her what he had done for Israel in the days of Moses. She's asking God to do what God has shown to be his characteristic behavior toward his people. So that you might say, and I think in fact at this point you should say, that Hannah's praying to the Lord isn't only just for herself, her praying to the Lord is that the Lord will act for his people too. At this time of the judges, even as he acts for her, she's asking the Lord sincerely to remember her and his people, to look upon her and his people, to notice her and his people. And the vow she makes is a costly one to be sure. But it was also faithful. We considered this last week, how we saw that Elkanah is 
according to Chronicles, a descendant of Levi. So that now here in the midst of what we know is the unfaithfulness of the Levites generally at the end of the book of Judges, all from last week, Hannah's making a commitment that with a son she'll do the faithful thing. She'll commit him to the Lord should the Lord grant her request. He'll serve the Lord at Shiloh as a faithful Levi in an age of unfaithfulness. And the mention of no razor touching his head would reference probably the Nazarite vow that he'll be set apart, holy, all his life, in fact. Number six would be the reference for that if you want to go back and read about what this is referring to. It is, I think, another sign of her faith. And then finally, in this scene, this second scene, notice her interaction with Eli. Eli's not impressive here. If anyone should understand heartfelt devotion to God, it should be Eli. But he not only misunderstands it, he attributes it to drunkenness. But we know what's happening. Notice what the text says. She's continuing to pray to the Lord in verse 12. And verse 13 says, Hannah was speaking in her heart. And in response to Eli, she says in verse 15, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. So who is the one rightly in the presence of the king? The Lord of hosts at Shiloh, whose heart is pure, whose soul is not lifted to another? Well, it's Hannah's, not Eli's. And we know it was a faithful response because somehow with this, Eli understands. He wakes up, it seems a bit, and so he answers, go in peace. Peace is shalom in Hebrew. It's not just a wish for peace in her heart. It's more far-reaching than that. It's well-being. It's fullness of life. It's for Hannah. It has one meaning, that Eli's blessing implies God will grant her prayer, not merely to make her feel better about being childless. The God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him, Eli says. I think Eli's saying the God of Israel will do this. Hannah. Which is why verse 18 concludes, then the woman went her way and ate. So something's changed. And her face was no longer sad. Hannah had heard from the Lord through Eli, and she believed the word. Which brings us then to the third scene in verses 19 to 28, which we go very quickly through because the point is not a complicated one. <laughs> Yahweh remembers Hannah. Yahweh remembers his people. And the one who's hopeless is now given a future. Verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And Elkanah looks maybe a little better now too fully on side. You notice his response in verse 23 to Hannah saying she wouldn't go up to Shiloh yet, but she'd wait till the, the boy is weaned. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. 
What do they all kind of mean by that? There's no explicit word of the Lord in this narrative. But God's word is the expression of his purpose, particularly in his promises to Israel. When we hear Elkanah say, may the Lord establish his word, we realize that the Lord's answer to Hannah's prayer is part of something greater, is part of his greater purposes for his people. The Lord answered Hannah's prayer, but in doing so, he was to bring his broader purposes to fulfillment. And it'd be a few years later, after the boy was weaned, that Hannah then fulfilled her vow. Therefore, she says in verse 28, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And then to conclude chapter 1, verse 28 says, And he worshipped the Lord. I think that's Samuel, the boy. He worshiped the Lord at Shiloh. He understood from the youngest age what his life was about, which I think is a clue as to how we're supposed to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. We move from barrenness to worship in this chapter. Why? Because of Hannah's faith? Well, in a sense, yes. But surely there were other women in ancient Israel who had no children and yet were faithful and yet did not receive what Hannah received. Hannah had faith. But the narrative ultimately isn't focused on Hannah, is it? The narrative's mainly about God. The Lord stands at the center of every scene of chapter 1, if you notice that. They go to worship the Lord of hosts in verse 3. It's the Lord who closes Hannah's womb in verses 5 and 6. It's the Lord of hosts to whom Hannah prays. It's the God of Israel, Eli says, will grant Hannah's petition. It's the Lord who remembered her. It's the Lord, Hannah says, who granted her petition in verse 27. First Samuel begins by showing us that God cared for Hannah, yes, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory. But what we start to see is that this care for Hannah wasn't just about Hannah. It was also God's care for Israel, for his people. As much as faithful Hannah's does, Israel's life has to do with the power and the faithfulness of God. Israel's new life emerges here out of barrenness by the power of God. And we don't have to wonder whether that interpretation of 1 Samuel 1 is right. We only have to look at 1 Samuel 2 to see the point. Because Hannah's prayer tells us all of this. In the birth of Samuel, the life and future of Israel have been reopened. You see that just by making a few observations in the prayer here in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. There's a certain tilt to this prayer, if you will. It tilts increasingly toward the future, I think. It's only verse 1 that uses any 
first-person pronouns. It begins by saying, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. But then from verse 2 onward, the prayer shifts becomes testimony about God. Notice the beginning of verse two. There's none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. You notice pretty quick that Hannah's isn't a prayer only focusing on her own circumstances. The prayer isn't merely, thank you, Lord, for giving me a son. Hannah recognizes in prayer that her joy is tuned in to Israel's future. This hymn prayer is bookended, in fact, by a reference to horns. Did you notice that? It's a way of talking about strength. We start with Hannah's strength. So in verse 1, we read, My horn is exalted in the Lord. But then in verse 10, we find, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What king, Hannah? How do we move from a celebration of Hannah's raised horn to conclude with the raised horn of the Messiah, the anointed one? And the answer, I think, lies in Hannah's growing understanding of what the Lord of hosts is actually up to. Notice how already in verse 1, the reason for the exalting of her heart and the lifting of her horn and the opening of her mouth is because she says, I rejoice in your salvation. Salvation. Why such strong language? No doubt what had happened to Hannah was wonderful and miraculous. But my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. What are we to make of this? Or the language of the rest of the hymn, for that matter. Once again, the key, I think, lies in the fact that for Hannah, there's more going on than just the birth of a son. So I like what one commentator says. Her language as she praised the God who looked on her affliction helps us see that God's goodness to her was in a sense a representation of God's goodness to Israel. The birth of Samuel stands at the beginning of 1 Samuel because there is a connection yet to be played out between Samuel and the story of God's salvation of his people. Hannah may, of course, have spoken more profoundly than she fully understood. That is a common feature of biblical history that we will see many times in 1 Samuel. However, as we now listen to her words, we will find a growing realization that the birth of Samuel, the occasion for this prayer, was part of something far, far bigger. Hannah's prayer was surely divinely inspired. By the end of the prayer, she will be speaking as a prophet. Notice how often in the heart of Hannah's prayer, it's Yahweh's willingness to intervene that leads to specific cases of transformation. It's there in verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And when they are, they look differently. 
This is the God who created all things, the Lord of hosts, the King, who will transform what we see in our world as strength and power and value into what He values and desires. The center of Hannah's prayer is verse 6. It's the Lord who has the ultimate power of life and death. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. And all of it because, as the end of verse 8 says, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He's created it all. It's all his. Which means in the end, the winners will not be the strong and the powerful and the wealthy and the famous and the successful. We'll come back to that theme in Samuel again and again. Instead, Hannah ends with verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. For in the end, as in the end of Hannah's prayer, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed his Messiah, in Greek, Christos. Hannah could not have known who the Lord's Messiah king was to be. There were expectations of a king in the future, to be sure, but how far down the road is Hannah looking? Does she know? That's what we have to find out in Samuel. In a way, the story of Samuel could be described as just the extended answer to the question, who is the Lord's anointed king? This one who will judge the ends of the earth. And I don't think it'd be giving too much away to say that when 2 Samuel comes to a close, we still don't know. But many years later, Another woman prayed a prayer that sounds astonishingly like Hannah's. You'll recognize it right away. It's in Luke chapter 1, and it goes like this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Hannah's song in the storyline of the Bible becomes an anticipation of Mary's and the coming of the king who would judge the ends of the earth. For as the angel said to Mary, he 
will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.